0: All right. Everyone says the volume is low, man, and my mixer is like at the top. I'm not sure how much more I can do. All right. What's up, everybody? How are you? It is the last day of March, March 31st, 2022. This is episode 109 of the Luke Thomas Live Chat. I am, of course, your host for this program. My name is Luke Thomas. Thank you so much for joining me. We House rules: We typically go for about an hour on free questions, but if you'd like to get one that gets priority, although not exclusivity, you may do so by leaving a donation in the super chat. We'll get to those at the end of the hour today on the docket. I think I saw some stuff about Jones at heavyweight, some upcoming fights like UFC 273, a few other things going on as well. So, uh, without further ado, let's get. Let's pull this up. Let's get this party. Oh, people are ringing my doorbell as soon as I go live—that's my favorite thing in the world. All right. Uh let's without further ado, let's get this party started. Shall we? And we're back. Okay, so if you're watching on YouTube, please give this a thumbs up. Subscribe if you're new. Uh on top of that, if you're listening on a podcast platform, do give us a nice review there if you'd be Oh, so kind. Uh, Let's see. I have a couple of things that Othello wanted me to read to you guys to remind you before we get going. Number one, the TikTok page. Blowing up. Uh, Othello's doing a great job with it. It's the same name that I have on Twitter. L. Thomas News. The letter L, the name Thomas, the word news, all together. L. Thomas News. Um, He also says, please don't say you never log into it. (laughs) It's not true. I do log into it now, but... I wasn't before But I do now Okay A couple of things We will have a bit of an announcement He wants me to do it today I'm actually going to save it for tomorrow Which I know he's going to put him on Megatilt Uh, We'll have an announcement tomorrow For the channel That you probably want to pay attention to I know some folks were complaining about Ad frequency Folks A couple of things One I don't those get auto-populated by YouTube. If there are too many, then I apologize. I can go out and edit them afterwards, but I had read through a bunch of the comments. I didn't see anything. Othello tells me they was sort of towards the back end. If there are too many this time, we will try to get to that after the fact, but that is, an, that is a YouTube auto-population issue. Also, he wants me to warn you, If you spam the live chat with uh, the N-word or endless political talks, either left or right, it will get you banned. Doesn't matter what side you're on. This isn't the place for it. And then timestamps will be up within a few hours after every video. He goes, we got kids and, and shit. Last but not least, folks have asked for a delivery address. We have one. You can send it to, first line, Luke Thomas News. Three different words, Luke Thomas News. That's the name of the company. Registered at the following address. 2000 Pennsylvania Avenue, Northwest, uh, Suite 7000, Washington, D.C., 20006. I'm going to give it to you one more time. Luke Thomas News, 2000 Pennsylvania Avenue, Northwest, um, Suite 7000, Washington, D.C., 20006. Please don't send me some kind of communicable disease, okay? all right. with that out of the way, let us get to the beginning. Actually, you know what? I'm going to... I'm going to turn this animation off. There we go. Okay, that being said, now let's get to your questions. Alright, so it's 3.04, we'll go to about 4.04, and then we'll get to any of the paid questions that are there. Okay... So I know that you yourself and some others out there don't think there was much of anything learned from the Mighty Mouse versus Rod Tang mixed rules fight, but I think that one thing the fight showed to, com- uh, to excuse me to the combat sports world is that MMA striking is not nearly as far behind the striking only combat sports as many people like to believe. I don't really agree with that. With zero Muay Thai fights under his belt. DJ was able to give a pretty damn respectable account of himself against what is currently pound for pound one of the greatest Muay Thai fighters out there. Okay. I don't really agree with, uh, I don't disagree with much of that. Rod Tang definitely won the round, agreed. Although, you know, we all know one doesn't score it that way. But yes, that, that is a true thing under our scoring criteria. He clearly won the round. But DJ landed some legitimately heavy shots in several exchanges and did very well in the clinch, in my opinion. He didn't just run away and disengage like many people said he would. Do you think the fight showed that MMA striking is closer to the striking-only sports than many people believe? Well, I don't know what many people believe. I mean, you're talking about some kind of baseline assumption that, I mean, here's here's just the reality of it. A lot of the striking that has been showcased by virtue of aging MMA fighters, getting into bare knuckle, getting into Jake Paul fights, you know, getting into that sort of thing, a lot of them being late stage, it has not been a strong representation of, of what MMA striking has to offer. And all of that is very clearly true. That has been a poor showing. So it turns out when you get one of the best guys in the world, even though at 35, I would still consider him I think that's what the hell he is. Uh, still consider him one of the best guys in the world. A very, very talented. Very experienced. Very well trained. Like we all we all know how good Demetrius Johnson is, you know. And he goes in there and has a lot to gain, a lot to lose. He's still in the middle of a well, not in the middle, but he's still in the part of a distinguished professional career, right? He's not like 42 and fighting outside of the lava shack or whatever. And so when you look at that and you look at how, how much better he did, you think, well, geez, I mean, I guess these Jake Paul representations aren't all that all, all that authentic. Well, I mean, they are and they aren't. There's a lot of factors here. Yes, if you get someone as talented as DJ who is still, you know, fighting and, and competitive against very good elite. Fighters in his own weight class, uh, and you get him to put you know put him in a high stakes bout, you're going to get a better result. But there's a lot of different things you need to understand here. One, again, like you guys, I've heard me make predictions about these crossover bouts. They're not typically very hard to make, right? Like, <laughs> you, like if it went to the MMA round, DJ was going to win that almost no questions asked. I mean, I suppose things can go wrong. We all know that in MMA. I mean, here's the point I'm trying to make as I sort of meander around it. You wouldn't really get a better sense of that unless you had more MMA fighters using their MMA striking to then go over into Muay Thai, go over in a more full-throated way and really get a baseline sample of what it looks like. Now, that's not really in the cards because there's no reason for them to do that. It, it, they're under contract in many cases, and and they can't. So this is something of an unknowable thing. But, dude, you got – I mean, you're asking me to make a declaration here about one guy in one bout that literally fought one round. It wasn't even in a ring. It was in a cage. That is very important, actually. I mean, I, I, I'm going to tell you, I think it is a lot harder to cut angles in a in a surface where everything is 90-degree angles. Um and it was just one round. It was one round, one opponent, one time, one round. This is not a sample size you can infer a lot from. Granted, it clearly looked different than what we've been seeing sort of ported over, which has always been a lot of guys who are older, a lot of guys who are older and beat up, a lot of guys who were older and beat up and striking wasn't even their primary mode of how they won. Of course, there's some other examples the other way. But I, I would not look at one round of Demetrius Johnson yes doing more than surviving he was defending and then occasionally attacking and then even even within that having a couple of very good moments that's you can't really that doesn't to me shake up anything nor does it really tell you a whole lot one way or the other it just sort of preserves in my judgment, the status quo, what we already knew. Guys, if a boxer competes in MMA, chances are the MMA guy is going to win. If an MMA guy goes and competes in boxing, chances are the boxing guy is going to win. If a boxing guy goes to compete in kickboxing, chances are the kickboxer is going to win. And we can play this game over and over and over. Nothing we have seen in any of the the different directions from jujitsu to MMA, MMA to boxing, boxing to kickboxing, kickboxing to whatever. In any of those, that apple cart has never been turned over. Not in any kind of broad-based way and I will tell you the reason I have a little bit more appreciation for that is because when I first started watching kickboxing I was like these MMA fighters are able to hang a little bit yeah they can hang a little bit that's right they can't do much more than that they can hang remember kickboxing and MMA are closer together than boxing and MMA boxing and MMA have been for up up until relatively recently much more distant communities um, with different teachers, different skill sets, different understandings. It's only, there used to be a guy called half-man, half-amazing, Jeremy Williams. He was one of the first guys who had like a pretty legitimate resume in boxing, and he got into MMA coaching. But even then, the tactics of how you employ boxing and what what works and what doesn't, what's valuable for MMA, and what are some of the things that you see in boxing. For me, the biggest one you guys know, rolling under hooks um, after they fire a shot, rolling and getting out and exiting at an angle. Dude, so many guys in MMA get hit or take L's by virtue of this not really being a thing. And it's harder to do because when you lower your level, you can get kneed or kicked. It's not the ob- most obvious solution all the time. But the communities are much further apart. MMA's integrate. There's one axis of martial arts, and then there's boxing. You might say boxing is a martial art, but in terms of the communities that surround them, it's kickboxing, MMA, and jiu-jitsu on one side, and it's boxing on another. That has changed more recently, but um, not too much. Anyway... To, to, to answer the question here, I don't think it changes anything at all. And by the way, while Demetrius did a very good job, I would imagine there's guys a lot worse than Demetrius who could have done something similar, which is to say maybe they get hurt worse in the first round but survive a first round and finish him off with jujitsu in the second. Dude, there's nothing Rod Tang could do to, in the, for the rest of his life to catch up with Demetrius Johnson in grappling. Would won't happen unless he just very much. Uh, Demetrius stops training like today, and then they have a rematch at fifty or something. He can't catch him. It's not pot. It's too late. He can't catch him. So, uh, you know, we're talking about a guy who's got grappling ability that is not high. Um, I think a, I, I'm not gonna say a lot of guys could do that, but I think DJ is not the only one. As good as he was. Considering Connor wants to go up to 170 permanently, how many fights could he win in the top 10 of that division? All right, well, for the purpose of this exercise, let's pull up the rankings and go through the top 10 of welterweight. Now, of course, these are guesses. How many could he win? I have no clue. I'll tell you what I think would happen. Number 10, Michael Chiesa. I think Chiesa would be on him like white on rice. Neil Magny, same thing. Sean Brady. Dude, Sean Brady would tear him limb from limb. Jorge Masvidal. That's a little more interesting than I think it has been because Jorge, as, as you guys know, I think that age is catching up with him. Um, and he might fight in a style that is more accommodating of the things where McGregor is good. So that would be, I think that's a winnable fight for Conor. Probably I would still favor Jorge, but that's a winnable fight, certainly. Wonder Boy, I, probably Wonder is too big. Even at an advanced age, still has too much distance for McGregor to cover. Bilal Muhammad at 5. I don't need to say much about that. Vicente Luque is interesting. I would still favor Luque, but that would be a wide-open striking affair. So that, that could be interesting. Leon Edwards, no. Gilbert Burns, no. Colby Covington, no. And then is a the champ, no. Yeah, I don't really like his chances, to be honest with you. I don't think there's many guys in there that he's going to have um, a lot of success against. Your, your Your mileage may vary. These are just guesses. In the end, they have to fight to really see. But there's maybe a couple of guys he could have, you know, a decent chance at threading a needle, but not much more than that. What do you think it says about the state of role models and what we expect from them as a society when so many people are so quick to defend the actions of Will Smith? Yeah, that was surprising. I don't know what it says about the state of role models. I, don't, I, 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 <laughs> I have learned through MMA that it's, very important to separate if you if you can um, the athlete from many other things that might entangle them be them tie, be they ties to dictators or you know what, what, whatever the thing that you may not like about them is um, this one in distant I, I'm not going to say there aren't a few complexities to it because a situation like that is so unusual and rare. It's why everyone is talking about it. Um, but, you know, I would question what it says about a person who would ever want to make Will Smith a role model, which isn't to say that you couldn't learn from his success. He obviously has been enormously successful. I think all of us could probably... You know, have a little bit of humility and say, what has he done in his life to get as far as he has? And it's probably just more than work. It's, although that's, I'm sure that's an ingredient. Like Will Smith's probably not a dumb guy at all. And I think that he has gotten as far as he has by a series of probably a little bit of luck, a lot of hard work, but a lot of calculated decision making as well. And you could learn from that. So I think that that deserves to be uh, acknowledged. But, you know, at some point, I just, like, I don't understand what's so complicated about this. Here is a guy who acted with impunity. And just decided that, you know what, do I have my phone? I sure do. Uh, shouts to Vinnie Paz. He posted this on his on his Instagram in his stories. And I saw it and I thought it was so funny. But in the end, it, it shouldn't be all that surprising. It's just about what you would expect from anyone when you examine the record. He found this old video of Will Smith on the Arsenio Hall Show. Making fun of one of Arsenio's um, guys in the band for being bald. Let me turn this up so you can hear it. They got rules. They got rules. Like he has a rule. The big player, he got a rule. He got to wax his head every morning. That's a rule. <laughs> he follows the rules, man. He follows the rules. All oh, these big jokes. Come on. <laughs> See, you All right. You <laughs> See that? So obviously you have a moment in his time, in his life, where you realize that what Chris Rock said was, I don't know about innocuous, but certainly no big deal. And in fact, Will Smith has engaged in in, in behavior like that. And why would you not? Because it's not, you would imagine it's not that big of a deal. So there must be something going on else in his life. But you're asking about the state of role models. You know, I would just say pick better role models, man. Like if your number one go-to are athletes and actors, you probably need better role models. You can take something from what they do with their craft, but why the hell would you pick people who's, who, you know, while you, again, while you can learn from their success, these are people mired in their own sense of um, superiority to the rest of us. They live in a world that caters to that, especially a guy like Will Smith. The reason why he did what he did is because he thought he could. And thought not only could thought he was in morally and and otherwise might makes right, and I'm entitled to, and fuck you if you don't like it. That I mean that that's this is what he did, and why wouldn't he? That he he probably uh, engages in an existence where um, everything is done for him, everything is catered to him. Um, and according to the academy, which is now being disputed by I think Will's agent, he was asked to leave and didn't. That wouldn't surprise me at all. That wouldn't surprise me at all. I think again. Listen, when people talk about role models, you, I think on this live chat people have asked me a number of times who are your favorite presidents, and I never have any good answer for you because I never consider it on those terms. Certainly you could make a ranking based on whatever worldview that you prefer and what kind of decisions they made in power, and then you know draw a, a series of conclusions based on that, but I'm really not interested in that kind of an exercise. I support certain policies based around ideas, and those ideas are based usually in pragmatic. Uh, considerations as well as ethical and value ones and then i just go from there who is best going to carry this forward did they or did they not um and what are the prospects for change and implementation that's these are the only things that i'm concerned about i don't i wouldn't i would strongly 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 caution you to not pick an athlete i guess there's going to be exceptions and an actor there's going to be exceptions as like role models um In either case, it requires a devotion to self and I think a series of other, um, I don't know that what it takes to make it to the very highest level of those worlds in any way really actually makes you a better person. I think that's what I would say. I mean, getting to be like at Michael Jordan level requires a, a level of competitive ability that is psychotic. It's psychotic. It's it's truly beyond the scope of rational, you know, community building, general norms, you know, um, loving thy neighbor, any of these things. It has got nothing to do with any of that. And then when they have these feedback loops about their greatness. I mean, you see what Sean Penn said, that he would smelt one of his Oscars, however many he has, if they didn't put Zelensky on a live feed on the Oscars. Like, dude, get please move to Mars tomorrow. Like, could you imagine the hubris required to both demand this of Zelensky, although he might want the audience for purposes of advancing his interests, but nevertheless, that world leaders should come to this award show on acting and that if they don't, you'll you'll melt basically your award in protest. Like anyone gives a fuck what you do with that. It's just a... You know the fact that he, I'm not gonna say I'm surprised it took this long, but we're talking about Colby and Jorge. But I would say that people like this, you know, how many times have you heard about someone meeting a celebrity and like, wow, they were a fucking asshole? Yeah, there's a lot of that going around, and I don't think it's in any way accidental. I just I don't know how you can become as rich and famous as him, and a not have something a little bit wrong with you, and then b through that whole process have a lot of that negativity reinforced. They can act their way around it. They can certainly make YouTube videos telling you about how great they are, and you know. That's fine. They're entitled to do that. But you're like, what does it say about the state of role models? I think there's probably a lot of role models in the world, but I just wouldn't go to Hollywood to dig them up. And again, that doesn't mean like I'm impugning them like they're all degenerates and there's nothing to like about it. There's plenty to like about the arts, be it music or movies or anything else. There's plenty to like. But like role models? Uh, are you surprised by the amount of justification Masvidal is getting from the MMA media when he attacked Colby by Ariel, Josh Thompson, and Michael? Although you spelled it Micheal Bisping, I find it. This person writes disgusting how supposed uh, journalists they put in quotations of the sport can condone his actions, and is this how MMA media loses? Uh, It's credibility by essentially not putting their biases to one side and discussing the situation in an impartial manner Well, let me back up a step here. I don't think that you can there's no such thing as you can be as fair as you want but Impartiality is impossible if you are born rich versus if you are born poor if you are born in North America versus if you were born in Name the poorest country you can think of if you were born Uh, tall or short or athletic or not? Did you go to public school or private? Were you around certain kinds of people or not? Did you have crime in your upbringing? Did you not? Did you have good schools? Did you not? I mean, I can list all the variables. All of these things will influence the way you think and how you see the world, and they will inform your judgment. You believe that you have made judgments um, by virtue of those things either not limiting you or somehow not affecting your, your impartiality when, in fact, all of them do. So what I would say is if they're telling you what their opinion is, you should be a little bit grateful about it because they are at least telling you what their opinion is. The worst thing that can happen is that someone actually has a opinion that in some ways actually drives their coverage, and then they pretend otherwise. That's the worst thing you can do. You guys know my opinions. I, I mean, this is the opinion show. I come on here and I tell you how I think about things and I try to give you the best assessment of those things that I can and why I believe it. And then I let you decide what you agree with, what parts you don't, what you liked, what you didn't, and how that informs everything else that I cover. I, I, I'm not saying this is a service to you. I don't mean it in that way. But the, I do try to make an effort at saying, these are my cards. I'm putting them on the table. I'm allowing you as the viewer or the reader or whatever to make a judgment based on that. Now, going beyond it. Um, you know, I didn't I, I frankly, I did see Ariel's video responding to uh, Graham Boylan over at um, Cage Warriors. I did not see the one about what he said about Colby. I did not see Bispings and I did not see Josh Thompson. So without having seen them and commenting on that specifically, I don't really know, um, I don't know what to say about that. It's funny that you're calling Michael Bisping and Josh Thompson the MMA media. although it is true that MMA media now is more me, uh, more fighter integrated than it ever has been. But I would say one, I think among the fighting part of the community, there's probably a lot of support for what um, Masvidal did. And I think that uh, would sort of line up with what you would expect from, I think people who do that for a living have to hold a series of views. And one of them is it's me against the world. And part of that ends up being a little bit of paranoia. But I think also what it means is that like they have such self-belief that unless you say anything other than what's relentlessly positive about them or at least, you know, obviously positive they take on and it's me it's me or it's you zero some kind of attitude and so that ends up producing a a person that is very much in um sort of inside honor culture they basically walk themselves inside the honor culture. And there's two kinds of, I mean, there's a little more than this, but there's a sort of a basic honor culture, and then there's dignity culture. I would like to believe that we live in dignity culture, although that's certainly been tested of late, but the difference would be in honor culture, if I insult you, if I insult your 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 woman, which, by the way, there's all kinds of you know, uh, misogyny just built into that worldview as well, but beyond that, if I insult you, you have a you I am I am taking or challenging at a bare minimum your honor, responding and in ways with escalating force. Is in that culture that is seen as not only not only the appropriate remedy, but um, it is it is lionized, it is praised, it is it is seen as virtuous. In a dignity culture, it works the opposite. It doesn't matter what you say about me; you have no control over my dignity whatsoever. It is inherent to my human being. It is inherent to my existence, and you cannot take that away from me. Um, a, I would argue that a more enlightened society is a dignity culture, not an honor culture. Although I do think that getting back to the fighters, they have an occupation that kind of—I'm not going to say forces them into it, but it just—they're—they're they're next to each other, and I think avoiding it becomes difficult. Although I will say, typically, as the fighters get older, if you saw my interview with Gilbert Melende or Gilbert Burns, excuse me. They they tend to get away from that as they get a little bit a little bit older a little bit wiser. It, this is not complicated. Um, speech is protected in this country, at least most forms of it, a lot of forms of it. Certainly in theory, um, attacking people you don't like is not. It's not. This is not. This does not require a great degree of moral reasoning. I understand, and as I have said previously, I understand the impulse to not feel sympathy for Colby by. By mere examination of his intentional agitation That come comeuppance finally happened You're like, Well, I mean, what do you, you know You're not, yes, we tell you not to feed the bears You kept feeding the bears and then you got mauled Like, yes, you should not get mauled But it's a terrible thing But we're supposed to say it's That's not quite even the right analogy But it's something kind of close to At least how a lot of people have been acting what I'm trying to tell you is, um, I understand that too. I don't, I don't really have a great degree of sympathy for Colby either. Like, do I wake? Am I losing sleep at night, being like, "Oh my God, how does this guy? How, how, how have we done him so wrong?" I mean, you know, he has agitated against people in uh, unsafe and otherwise dangerous ways, and it caught up to him. That is, that is the world in which we live, unfortunately, at times. Um, but. As I've said before, he is the victim and he is entitled to every legal and civil remedy that is before him. And we'll see what happens. Uh, I would just tell you, I don't think this is very complicated. It's really not. You can't do what Jorge is alleged to have done at all whatsoever. And let me just tell you very quickly, part of honor culture is built into it that might makes right. I don't like what you're doing, but I'm stronger than you, so fuck you. Let me explain to you very quickly, you don't want to live in that kind of world. You don't in a world where that is nakedly the operating principle. And I know what you might say, like that's still a lot of how the world is dictated. Fair enough, that is true. But to the extent that we can move away from that, and in many ways we have, that is, it's not just more enlightened in some kind of general sense. I actually think it creates for better living conditions, more human flourishing, I think a better um, communal interaction and a series of other benefits. It's not complicated. For the re- There might be a series of other reasons why they want Colby to suffer consequences or, or however they said it. Again, I've not seen what they said exactly. Um, so, without again, without seeing it, I can't comment on that. But this is not very complicated. I think in most cases, what is happening is that people have been... They find Colby atrocious. And he agitated and it cost him. And they're like, well, you know, suck it is their attitude. Which... From a emotional standpoint, I understand. From an ethical reasoning standpoint, it's indefensible. It's indefensible. You can't defend it. You cannot. No, no civilized person could ever defend that. And I don't think that under real scrutiny that any of those guys would, because I know all three in some capacity, and they're all pretty smart. Um, so that's it. it. This is not. This is very. This is very much not difficult. Yeah, under no circumstance does the assailant, in this case, uh, whoever it may be. They have, no, they have no moral high ground whatsoever. End, end of argument. S- to this point, um, when is violence okay? How do you feel about covering a business where people send each other to hell for money and fame? Do you feel conflicted? I don't feel conflicted when it happens under... Listen, at the end of the day, this is how I view it. It is prize fighting. And so this is why fight or pay matters to me. It may matter differently to other people. The trade has to be as equal as possible. Maybe there is no such thing as equality, but if you're going to give over brain cells and quality of life and risk life and limb quite literally, there should be maximum available in the marketplace. Again, not just maximum of overall wealth, but relative to what is possible under the appropriate regulatory mechanism and scheme. There needs to be as much maximization on one side of the prize to make the fighting worth it. That is, that's why they call it prize fighting. That has to be the exchange. And so for me, as long as that exchange is relatively equal, where, you know, Canelo, who I think is not just risking life and limb, but is fighting the very best and bringing in all this money, when he's getting 40 or $50 million guarantees, to me, that's, that's right. That's what I want to see. Bud Crawford, too, you know, he might have gotten a little more money than. I don't know what promoter he's going to end up with, but the fact that he was able to get a lot of money out of it, good. And any fighter who gets a nice check, good, good for them. I remember over him, he probably still wasn't getting what he deserved, but I remember I was looking at a couple of his paydays, and it was like 800000 every time. And I was like, damn, that's a, whoever got that for him, that's a, good, that's a good, that's a solid contract, relatively speaking anyway. Good, get, maximize that every time. Anyway, so do I ever feel conflicted? When that is in balance, I do not feel conflicted. When it's out of balance, I feel very conflicted. Um, But when is violence okay? Again, not not another very difficult question, at least for the first part of it. Is there a case for violence being acceptable? Quite obviously there is. Quite obviously. At a bare minimum, self-defense seems entirely reasonable. That's violent. At least it can be violent. That's okay. At times, Uh, that could be, by the way, on the street. That could be in a more uh, formal, uh, militaristic sense, in terms of nation versus nation, where one has to defend itself. Yes, of course. The question is not whether violence okay is okay. There are there are certainly going to be scenarios where violence is not really okay, but frankly, morally uh, required. To be to be quite truthful about it, if you saw somebody beating up um, a one year old kid. And you just walked by and didn't intervene, or at a bare minimum, call nine one one. Like you just like that's someone else's problem. You have you have failed all kinds of moral tests, right? So there are there are cases where, in fact, I remember it was an undergraduate. One of the one of the classes that we had, one of the first sort of, and I'll let you guys sort of noodle this through. But someone was saying, imagine a woman was drowning in um, like quicksand or something. So it's slow, but you can see her moving, and then a man comes along and is like, "I can save you." I can save you, but I'm going to toss you the rope, but you can only accept the rope if you will. And this was, (laughs) okay, so this is 1999. So I don't know if these same examples would be brought up, but it's a little bit aggressive as an example just to illustrate a point. What if the person handing out the rope was saying, I'm going to hand you this rope on the condition that you do sexual favors for me. Now, I know that's like, out of nowhere, all of a sudden we're doing this. But the reason why that's brought up is because under any other condition, and including this one maybe as well, which we'll get to in just a second, but certainly under any other condition where your life was not in jeopardy, um, demanding this at any kind of scenario would be a non-starter. And this was, so so the question now is, is it, if you're you're saving someone's life, if you're saving someone's life, is it ethical to then demand some kind of morally horrible thing in service of it for that good thing to be achieved? And is that still a net positive? You guys can noodle that through, like how you how you deal with the moral dimensionality of it. So that's really the only question you have to ask yourself: is is not, is violence okay? Of course it is. Of course it is. When is it okay? And that becomes a little bit more difficult. But you're asking here, am I okay with violence and fighting for sport? I most certainly am. I most certainly am. I think uh, for a couple of reasons, I think one, just from a mere, maybe perhaps a libertarian perspective on this particular equation about like sex work, um, um, fight work, I think it's much better that the government find some way to regulate it but not outlaw it. Um, That would seem like a much better option that one, I think, more... Broadly preserves human freedoms, uh, and two just gets you a lot of cases um, better harm reduction and outcomes in that way, um, at least at least for the sex workers involved or at least the fighters involved. So, so yes, there are certain protocols that need to be in place. There are certain you know there, I, I'm glad that there are athletic commissions that look into promoter conflict of interest or whether or not there is. Um, a fight, a fight that's being booked is sufficiently com- uh, competitive to make it legal. Like all of those things, as long as those those guardrails are in place, and the prize and fight equation is more nimbly balanced, I don't ever feel conflicted. Ever. It's just when it gets imbalanced, it becomes a huge problem for me. We need a bookshelf, a Himalayan salt lamp a bass guitar, candles, and some nice Indian tapestry as a tribute to your birthplace and a sofa where you do the live chat on your belly, swinging your legs. Make us feel safe and at home. I do my best. All right. Luke, why do you think combat sports... (coughs) Excuse me. God, this cold has lasted. I think I had the flu. Uh, Why do you think combat sports cater to and draw... Clown Shoes. In other sports categories, there is literally zero demand to see unproven, underskilled, outmatched, or uninitiated competition. People wouldn't turn up in droves to see their local YouTube streamers face off against a Super Bowl team in a pro football game. Celebrities wouldn't be front row for famous chefs versus the Lakers in basketball. Well, it's a little bit wrong, but I'll come back to it. So why do you think the appetite is there for combat sports? Personally, I have no interest outside of the best fighting the best, whether that be for a championship or a ranking, yet people seem infatuated with watching people fight simply because they are popular in some medium that most often has absolutely nothing to do with combat ability. People say that it's good for the sport, but I disagree with the sentiment. Could you really guarantee that more than 10% of Jake Paul's viewership is really transferring to viewership for regular boxing events that don't have his name attached? So that's where I had a little bit of an issue. So this is something I have to change my opinion about, right? As you get new information, if it challenges your worldview and the information is accurate, you should update your opinion. So I'm going to update mine. My belief about the YouTube boxing thing was not that it was bad for boxing. Because Remember, there's some people coming out being like, this is terrible for boxing. I was like, I don't buy that it's in any way terrible but I did not believe that it would be very lasting that there would be some kind of real boost to boxing I mean you guess for the events that the the YouTube people are on those might do well or whatever but is that really going to make people want to watch Regis Progray or you know Chocolatito or something like that no I didn't really buy that and there is still something to that argument however there's also a lot of evidence that more broadly not just at Jake Paul events that the YouTube movement has brought in a new generation of fans that otherwise wouldn't be there. Now, we'll see how long they last. We'll see how fleeting that is. Maybe Jake Paul comes back. Maybe he doesn't. Maybe he signs with Showtime. Seems like DAZN's been making some noise about him, so we'll see what happens. I I really don't know. Uh, But but I would say, just to back up a little bit here, it has been beneficial for boxing. It is unclear how long-lasting and how far it goes out beyond the bigger names where... And the principal names involved That is true But that it did bring in more broadly A younger audience that has at least for now Stuck around That was not something I saw coming And I think we all have to acknowledge If that's not something we saw coming We have to admit we're wrong and Or at least for that part of it we're wrong So I will definitely admit we're wrong Now getting back to something When you say that like why do Why do these sorts of things happen in combat sports And they don't happen in other sports It's not totally true It's not totally true First of all, at the minor league level, which I realize is not what we're talking about here, but in baseball's minor leagues, they often resort to gimmickry to get audiences. And, you know, signing guys like Tim Tebow or back in the day Michael Jordan is kind of part of that too. In fact, I would say other regular teams when they, who was in the NFL, kind of signing Tim Tebow was part of like, I mean, there was just no way he ever deserved to even be on a practice squad past one or two seasons, much less playing in games. Um, And yet that thing kind of held on, I think, in part because he was extremely popular and folks wanted him to win. So there is a little bit of a pull at that. But to your point, you know, if you can only start five for the starting Los Angeles Lakers, they're not going to put Jake Paul in there just to get attention. Um, So part of it is that the other, what you have to understand is pay-per-view, which speaks to like star power, it is a star power driven business. People think that what they really want to see is the best fighting the best. And when you tell me that, I believe you. That is more interesting to me. I think to more sophisticated fight fans, that's really quite true. But there are not very many sophisticated fight fans. I'm lucky to have many of you watching, but there are not many of us. uh, To the extent that we have any sophistication at all. There's not many of us. What most people want to see are just the ones that titillate them. That's it. Like They just want to see the most popular fighters They want to see the fighters that they like the most They want to see the ones that they care about the most Now, they don't want to see them if they're losing all the time Or they're getting viciously KO'd But if you can do what Jake Paul has done Which is pick on older, smaller guys from a different sport I mean, it's basically the reality of the last couple of them, right? Last few of them, really uh, then you can kind of finagle it a little bit. Because what's really what's what's really behind Jake Paul fandom? Yeah, there's probably some folks who really believe he can beat good fighters, but most of us know, and I think he probably knows, he's never going to beat a good fighter, like a really good fighter. It's never going to happen. Uh, but if you really like Jake Paul, this is why those guys on YouTube can then go out and make a diss track. And folks are like, man, that diss track is fire. And then the next day he can decide he wants to have a podcast. And the next day he can he could be a chameleon because what they're really into is Jake Paul. That's really true for a lot of fighters for casual fans. What they're really into is Vanderle Silva, Chuck Liddell, Israel Adesanya you name it. That's what they're really into. And so for combat sports, which has no barriers to entry, any any carnival barker, any weirdo, any moron, any just absolute psycho can just walk inside the tent. There are no barriers to entry. There's very little scrutiny with inside the industry to make sure that anything that's happening is above board. Um, and the entire part of fighting that makes it interesting to people is that people they like, people they hate, the stakes of it. This is why MMA and pro wrestling are somewhat closely associated um, both in history and in practice because it's about wanting to see people that you like beat people that you hate, and that liking can be of a lot of reasons. I like their skill. I like their nationality. I like their gender. They're like me, right? If you're a young woman and you see another young woman who came from the same town as you and has, you know, similar kind of accent as you, and they're blowing up on the world stage, this is a big deal, right? That's really what's at the heart of fandom. So there are people like me, and this is what I've warned you, that kind of thing lives and dies with those fighters, you know, and and that kind of lasts, but it doesn't, that's not love of MMA. It's not love of boxing, it's not. If you want to be in this for the long haul, if you want to have a lifelong relationship with combat sports, that's where your love has to go. It has to go to the sport. And that can branch out to the athletes, of course. It's the one is not mutually exclusive. And by the way, even when I was saying like you know, be cautious about making athletes role models. Again, that doesn't mean you can't have genuine respect for what they do and what kind of character it shows to put themselves through the difficulties that they do. Um, It's just that I just don't think that there's anything you can say about the highest level of pro sports that is really about like this is a model that most people can follow. Dude, their lives are nothing like yours. Nothing like yours. It's not true at all. <laughs> um, so no barriers to entry. People love weird. The weirder, the louder, the dumber, the better. There's a lot of reasons why. Like the idea that and this is why this is why the argument, like, then boxing the best don't fight the best. So, first of all, it's not even close to as true as people think it is. It's somewhat true. It's definitely true relative to UFC, but even then, not nearly as much as it's made out to be, number one. Number two, even then, dude, most casual fans don't give a fuck about that. They don't even know who the best is, they just know who they like. Sometimes that gets associated with, I like who the best is. Like, why does Duke have fans, you know, from Montana? They just like who, you know, who's kicked ass in college basketball for a long time. But it, that's what underpins it. It's not a desire to see what's best. It's a desire to see who you like, and it's laid bare. What these other these, The reason why you don't see as much of that, of course, in other institutions is that, one, the institution is what is powerful. It's the Washington Wizards. It's Manchester United. It's, you know, Real Madrid. Um, and then what drives that institution's prestige is winning. So you just can't fuck around nearly as much. But at the margins, when they can, they, they do Oh, did I miss one here? Uh, What do you see next for Sanhagen? What about Mirab or Dom Cruz? I would say that he found out that he's good enough to give the very best a tough fight, but not to beat them yet. And so retooling that, adding what skills he needs, and then starting that process a little bit over, uh, I, I think Dom Cruz makes a little bit more sense for me. Now, he's higher ranked than that. Where are they at Bantamweight? So, at Bantamweight, you've got Sanhagen at four. and got Cruz. That's seven. Yeah, you could do Sanhagen versus Font, too. Even that's a, yeah, that's a tough fight. Um, Sanhagen versus Vera, something like that. I, I think he needs to... I, I believe he will be champion. I, I believe that. But Peter Jan is a very tricky puzzle to solve. And Sterling's going to get a crack at it. I realize he's the champ, so whatever. But I think of the two, Sterling is a trickier kind of fight. Um, but I certainly grant that Aljamain is um, not in this position by accident. I think Sandhagen will eventually be champion, but I think he has to really put together a couple of missing pieces that are not huge but are critical. Not, it's not like he's missing a lot. It's just that the parts that he's missing have been very costly. If there was ever a fighter who felt no pain, how much of a relative advantage? I would not want that person to get a license. I think if you didn't feel any pain, you'd be a threat to yourself. Getting pain input and learning to deal with it, that's part of fighting. Psychologically overcoming some of it, using it as a guide to your actions to get around things. If you couldn't realistically feel pain, that to me is not just performance enhancing or whatever that's supposed to mean. But... That's, that now raises questions about whether what, what could go wrong here without getting, like pain is telling you a story. That's why people are like don't ignore pain. Okay, there's a difference between pain and injury. Fair enough. Like, and you should know the difference if you're an athlete and act on it accordingly. Uh, but pain is telling you something. Something's not right. Um, you need to know that to make decisions about your health and your life. Without that, I would really worry about someone. Um, Honest thoughts on Ron DeSantis He's got a lot of Floridians fooled Into thinking he's somebody that he's not Um, Would you be more worried If he ran against Biden or Trump He is what I would call a competent Trump Um, Trump has all the mendacity in the world But he's highly incompetent DeSantis has um, I would argue a similar amount of mendacity But he is significantly more competent Right, I think he's Harvard-educated as well. He is no dummy, um, but I think he does a lot of what he does for performative politics, which gets on my nerves. Um, I don't have much nice to say about him. You've discussed how you would favor Whitaker over Vittori if they fought... Now that they'll be officially fighting soon, who do you see as the most realistic path for victory for Vitor, since the odds are stacked against him? I'm gonna say, be you gotta be all over Robert Whitaker. You gotta be on him like white on rice. You gotta be all over him, dude. If he has room to move, he's gonna win. Period. Period. If Robert Whitaker has lateral movement that's effective, where he is avoiding being cage cut, and he's able to time his entries and he has blitzes. And he has exits where he's got room on the side to side, room coming in, room going out, right? And again, granted, you know, taking that away, much, much easier said than done. But this is just what I mean. We talked about it last last week on the live chat about how guys training in open mats is giving them a false sense of security. I, if I was Whitaker and Vittori, I would spend every minute I had in that cage, not one on the open mats, because you must take that away from him. You got to make that a clinch fight. You got to make him press him up against the fence. You gotta you gotta dig to the body with knees. You gotta make him threaten the wrestling, right? You gotta be threatening your wrestling all the time, trying to take him down. You gotta be all fucking over him. Like a Colby Covington. That's why the Colby Covington versus Whitaker one to me is very interesting. Cause I would probably still favor Whitaker to win, but the very specific test. That's the thing about Colby, man. He's a real specific kind of test. He does what the one thirty five guys do at one seventy. You know, there's a lot of guys at 135 who can just kind of be all over you with the wrestling. And, you know, some are better at it, some are worse. But that that mode of approach goes away quickly past 155 because of the, the physical tax on there. But for Colby, who's got just unbelievable cardio, he can kind of still weaponize that in, in the way that he does. And he's got sound positioning. And he can chain takedowns together. And he's a good mat wrestler who can scramble his ass off. Like, he's a very specific dynamic kind of test that I would love to see against Robert Whitaker. Vittori's not that. He's a big strong kid, um, who I think is still putting pieces of his game together. I would like to see him get behind a jab and just and just absolutely shove it. If you want if he wants to win, you gotta shove it in the face and the chest of a guy like Robert Whitaker. You gotta get right up on top of him and not give him an an ounce of uh, air to breathe. Cause if he's got room, he the only guy who can beat him even giving him a little bit of room and by the way izzy was putting him on his heels too but like it's probably izzy izzy gives him a little bit of room but it, you know izzy is izzy so he can he can do that i don't think i don't think anyone else at 185 can beat him if he's got room simple as that the individual tactics needed to take that away are as a separate question but when you look at him in that fight Pay attention to how much distance is between him and Vittori and how much distance is between his back and the cage. That will tell you a lot. Great interview with Gilbert Burns on uh, Morning Combat this week. Yeah, man, I was really excited at the response. You guys seem to love it. And I said it, um, you guys know I don't really like doing interviews because they're so inauthentic. This was the exact opposite of that. And by the way, he showed me his phone where he had texted his manager um, the day that he wanted the the fight. He told us about it first, and then he was like, you know what, let me pull it up my phone. And he pulled up his WhatsApp, and he showed it to me. And I saw the conversation, and he told exactly the truth. Dude, Gilbert Burns, to be so smart and so talented and so high-level yet be so level-headed, it's a rare combo, man. That's a very rare combo. Usually you hear what he says, and a guy's a little bit older than even him, 40 or so. You know, where they're really having to reflect. He was forced, I think, to do a lot of soul-searching after that Kamaru Usman fight. And he did. And, you know, I know that win over Wonder Boy didn't, like, blow up the world or whatever. But when you hear him talk, it's like, dude, if every interview was like this, I would would only do interviews. I would only—this is—that was what—that's what I'm looking for. I'm looking to ask you a series of honest questions to get more information, to better understand you, to better understand the moment, to better understand what drives you and where you're going. And I'm, I'm just looking for honest answers. That's all I'm looking for. I'm looking for a, you know, it's all staged in the sense that there's a camera, and there's lights, and, you know, we had to cut B-roll of walking into the cage and stuff. But the point I want to make is, in general, that conversation, I was, I was asking real things, he was saying real things. That's what I'm looking for. That is very hard for me. I have found for me, Maybe others disagree. I have found for me that it's very hard to come by. I, I have not been successful at finding more occasions at that. So I really enjoyed it. You're asking, will he ever be a UFC welterweight champion? I really hope, man. Listen, he's in a very difficult division with very difficult guys to beat. Guys who are historically great in Kumar Usman. I don't I don't know if anyone's going to beat him uh, anytime soon. I don't know. I really don't know the answer to that. Only Only time will tell. But... I would really like to see a guy like Gilbert Who has given what he's given And does what he does And represents what he What he represents To be I would like to see the fight game Smile upon him You know Remember how happy everyone was At UFC 199 When the fight game Well I guess Luke Rockhold wasn't happy But How many people were happy For Michael Bisping When he won at UFC 199 Um, I would like to see something like that For Gilbert You know Gilbert's had a different journey But Something like that Would be nice to see Luke, do you think it's fair to say Aldo is past his prime, dude? Of course, Aldo is past his prime. <laughs> fair, I, I think it's inaccurate to say anything other than that. Or do you think he's actually better, but the competition he has faced is much better? Well, here's the thing: understand something. When I say physical prime, that's what really, that's what prime usually means. It's like when were when were your most elite outcomes. In terms of winning, and losing, happening, by virtue of when your physical tools really aligned with a developed skill set, he probably knows more about fighting today, and he's still picking. He's still picking up on things. And by the way, your prime is relative. A, a, a few, it's not like one day or even one year. It can be a, a series of moments, which means even your slight pre prime and your slight post prime are still very good years. He's clearly post prime. He is not in. The, the the very heart, the dead center of his best possible work. Um, I think by virtue of having to change divisions, he's told you that. And, you know, the, the horrible cut he has to go through to get there. But the point I would want to make is even post-prime Aldo, like, you know, Aldo's one of the best fighters ever. That guy at post-prime is still going to be very, very good. But is he in his direct prime? No. not Like, how could he be? What is he, 34 How old is Jose Aldo? People extend prime. I've never seen, there is no sport where someone's prime is, he's 35. He's 35. Decidedly post-prime. Decidedly post-prime. Not even close. But even being post-prime, this dude is very, very good. Beating Rob Fawn and Pedro Munoz and Marlon Vera the way he has. Clearly, he is still very, very good. But he's one of the best fighters of all time, man. A guy like that is still going to do what he does. But let me just say this: there is no sport whose media and commentators exaggerate someone's prime more than MMA. And typically, they do that more so on the aging end. Although I've seen it on the the younger end too, where someone will be like, "Oh, he's twenty two. He's already in his prime." That doesn't. That's not what prime means. You couldn't be in your prime until you were at your max physical. Development that's not going to be for most people unless you're playing tennis or some shit. It's not going to be 22 for fighters. That's going to be like 28 to 32. That's that's that window. That's prime typically. That will vary a little bit, but typically it's going to be 28 to 32, 31, something like that. 35 at 135 pounds, you are very much post prime. And the reason why I think in MMA a lot of people don't know what prime means is one, they don't watch other sports, so they don't know what like that. What does it mean to be in your prime? Like, how do we understand that? It's it's a language that comes out of watching, not just boxing, but other sports as well, like Bo Jackson in his prime, Michael Jordan in his prime. What does that look like? Um, The other part is that everyone in MMA walks on eggshells when they talk about each other, in part out of just self-preservation. But the other part is, you know, oh, well, he's still, you know, I don't want to say he can't win the next one because MMA is chaotic and it is undulating and it is relative to boxing, I think a little bit harder to predict. And so you never want to just bury a guy, and I've buried guys before in the past and paid for it. But let me just assure you, as good as Arlovsky is doing, and he is doing, I mean, far better than I ever imagined, he is post-prime, very much post-prime. And Aldo isn't as far along in that way, but yeah, he's not in his prime. He's not even close. Yo, know, Luke, you recently said that stretching before lifting can actually be detrimental. Can you elaborate? Also, I'm always hearing you talk about delta eights. Can you explain from your experience what type of high you get from it compared to the THC? I'll start with the second part first. Actually, I have some here. I don't know. These ones are, I did not enjoy that much. Let me see myself. There we go. Wait. Can't see it. Anyway. Yeah, let's try that. There we go. Um... There, these were okay. Uh, okay, so the Delta Eights, two two different things you would want to pay attention to, folks. One of my know what it's called Delta Eight. If you actually look at um, the 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 way that the 2018 Farm Bill defines marijuana, it basically defines it as having uh, of the marijuana plant put on the, on the molecular level having nine binding molecules. So some stoner who is also pretty smart and decently at chemistry just removed one of them because if you define it as having nine of them and you take out one, and now it has eight, it is technically different than how marijuana is defined as being illegal um, from the legislation. So that's where the term comes from, as I understand it. And so, but because you take away one of those bonds, it's a little bit different, it's a little bit milder, it's a little bit mellower. So the ratio, if you notice here, if you notice the ratio, it says 25 gummies, 25 milligrams of Delta-8 per gummy. So if I go to my local dispensary here that I have a legal marijuana card to go look at, they will give me individually wrapped uh, gummies. Each one is going to be 10 milligrams of THC. So this is going to be 25 per gummy of Delta-8, 10 per uh, actual Delta-9, technically regular weed. Why would they do that? Because it's mellower, you would not, if I did 10 to 10, it would be much milder. So what you're going to end up seeing is that A, the experience will be a little bit milder unless you just basically use a ton of Delta-8 where I would say that, you know, it's almost in some cases four to one. Like if this one says 25, if this says, if this is 25 uh, milligrams of Delta-8, it feels like to me something approximating five or 10 milligrams of uh, regular marijuana. So that's why you end up seeing like there's a company called Death by Gummy that makes Delta Eights. Each one of those is 100 milligrams, but that feels about like what 20 or 30 milligrams of regular THC might be like. So, and even then, the the highs are not the same. It's again, it's a little bit more for me. It's a little bit more of a body high. I get a lot, I get a lot hungrier on Delta Eight than I do on regular on regular um, marijuana. So, um, that would be the difference. And then the first part is why can lifting be detrimental? There is, as I understand it, there is at least some research to indicate that if you fully stretch in some kind of way before lifting, there is some active dynamic stretching you want to do where you want to limber up. There can be certain exercises where you actually do want to stretch to get maximum mobility. For example, if you're going to be doing, um, a lot of times if you're going to be doing overhead pressing, you want to make sure that your lats are nice and loose so that you have good uh, scapular retraction and good form to balance. If your lats are super tight, it actually can be really hard to lift. Uh, but in any case, but hardcore stretching beforehand, what it ends up and ac- ends up doing is, I'm not gonna say deflating the muscle, but stretching it that way doesn't allow, I think, the same kind of um, uh, stimulus uh, response from the training by virtue of the muscle fibers having been already been stretched out in a way that doesn't uh, isn't as conducive for hypertrophic muscle growth. Um, I'll try to find where I read that there was a, there was a few studies that came out about that, but all of my favorite lifters are very, very clear about that. Like you want to do some active mobile dynamic stretching to get you going after a proper warm up, but you know, fully stretching out, they say to save that for the end of the workout. That said, would you rather be slapped by Will Smith or punched by Conor McGregor for refusing to drink his whiskey? I'll take the slap by Will Smith. I saw people being like, oh, Chris Rock has a good chin. Well, which is it? I saw most folks who were saying that also saying that Will Smith can't slap for shit. And it's like, well, if he can't, then does Rock have a good, like Rock would only have a good chin if it was a hard shot that he took. But you're telling me he didn't take a hard shot. So anyway, uh, I'll go with the Will Smith thing because that slap looked like a joke. I I've been slapped harder by my mother, <laughs> multiple times. You know, I'll take that ten times. Out of the- I mean, I you know, I I was hit by my mom where it left a mark instantaneously. Chris Rock looked like his makeup was barely smudged. Luke, what are some boxing fundamentals that are overlooked by MMA strikers that could seriously add to their game? For example, I feel like a surprising amount of fighters are unable to throw serious volume without overextending themselves in the clinch where they then get out-grappled. What's missing here? Say it again. I feel like there's a surprising amount of fighters who are, una- are unable to throw serious volume, okay, without overextending themselves into the clinch. Okay, then they smother themselves, basically, where they then get out-grappled. Yeah, so one of the, that's called smothering yourself in boxing. One of the... Guys, I've got a... Um, it's, a it's a very minor one, but I've got a bit of an Errol Spence tape study coming out. So Showtime asked me to put together one Errol Spence Jr. is going to fight um, um, Jordanis Ugas on April 15th or 16th? 16th. By the way, that weekend is going to be killer. So, you know, Bellator, some of their cards are not that great, and some of their cards are pretty good, but that card they have on that Friday where they have McKee Pitbull 2 and they're going to have the Light Heavyweight Grand Prix Final with Vadim Nemkov and Corey Anderson, like that's a baller fight. That's, that's Sorry, those are two very good fights. And that's just what it is. Those are, those are very good fights. And then the next day, you got Spence versus Ugas. Guys, I want you to pay attention. Pay attention to something with Errol Spence. Again, I didn't do a huge deep dive. I just tried to find. Two guys who, no one is quite like Ugas, but two guys who fought Spence in a way that was roughly similar-ish to Ugas. And I'll leave that for that, but like, you got to see what Errol Spence does. This guy is a boxing prodigy. He only picked it up at 15, and I cannot believe how good he is. I, I missed a lot of the fights growing up by virtue of what well, his, his, his come up, by virtue of just um, being focused solely on MMA for so many years. But um, the thing I wanted to point out was, you've got to look at his balance. To this question, even better than most boxers, Errol Spence is always putting himself in a position to get not the perfect per se every time, but enough extension on his punches to make them count. He doesn't smother himself. A lot of people will land a shot or in the the point of trying to pursue an attack or corner one, get him up against the ropes, get him up against the cage, and you're right, they kind of don't know how to press the volume button without. Entering a new phase of fighting, Errol Spence. Because by the way, you know that inside space, there's a little bit of wrestling and boxing as well. I don't know what they call it, but it's not that. But Errol Spence avoids all that too. He's got one little trick. This is a very, very minor detail. This is not the thing I focus on, but I want you to pay attention to this. When Errol Spence gets wrapped up, a lot of boxers they overhook, right? They overhook both sides, one side, and then they overhook. Errol Spence never does that. Almost never does that. He constantly. Um, uses his lead arm to uh, lead hand, lead forearm, lead arm, I mean everything, everything everything in there you'll see, to um, everything flows from his jab. Everything flows from his jab. But there's one little trick he does where instead of wrapping up in a close contest to keep it going, to keep the referee off of him, the opponent thinks, I can just wrap and hold. And what he'll do is he'll drive his hand straight in the air and then he'll bring it right in front of him and then he'll use this as a wedge to push away his opponent. And then he'll do some uh, body work. And I watched him do it. There are many times where you can see him wedging it straight down. he goes straight up. It's not it, He doesn't push on the face away from him. He brings his, his fist straight in the air and then guides it straight down in front of him and then wedges out with his elbow. And I've noticed there's been a lot of times the referee was just about to intervene, but then he creates a separation. Then he just lights his opponents on fire with it. Dude, he is always... You never see him unless, like in the Kel book book fight, where their feet were getting tripped over each other. You never see him out of position. You never see him uh, unbalanced on his punches through volume. On top of that, you guys want to see what does it look like when a fighter is almost at the perfect position or distance every time they throw. You have got to watch Errol Spence. I can't. I can't overstate it. He. Him and Chocolatito are better than most fighters I've ever seen about rem- keeping their feet under them, so that they and then constantly using very nimble, very sharp footwork to get a good angle, but also a good distance, so that the punch that they're throwing—uppercut, hook, jab, combo, body hook, whatever it is—gets at the perfect spot. So that's a that, that's one that, by the way, not every boxer gets either. But even on among the boxers, Errol Spence Jr. is. <laughs> I don't know I don't know who else besides Chocolatito these days can do what he does when it comes to that particular skill, the the balance. Um but on top of that, I think I would just add the one I went to before. It, again, it's not something you can always go to by virtue of how MMA striking works. But the rolling under the hooks to 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 get out of the way. I want you guys to pay attention to how many guys get caught backing up like this, leaning back, and then a diving hook catches them on the exit. It happens all the time because they don't, they don't really either know or want to roll underneath a hook to then create an angle. And the best boxers do it effortlessly. I think that's a big one. And again, I want to be clear. You couldn't just take it from boxing and all, all of a sudden it just works in MMA. It doesn't work quite like that. But finding, finding good best practices to make rolling under hooks a more common practice, I think, would be of only real benefit. And the ones who do it now are ahead of the curve. So pay attention to who does it. Peter Yan does it. Corey Sanhagen does it. You know. All right, it's four oh four. Let's get to your questions. As I pull them up here, and I'm going to put this back on. All right, as you guys know, if you leave a donation, I get to it at the about the hour mark, and then we go from there. All right. Dun, 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 dun. Okay. This person asks, "Would it be appropriate to deem B. Shab as the Wendy Williams of MMA?" I don't know. Well, what the? No. Disappointed how he loves misconstruing stories. Well, I don't know. Did he misconstrue the story, or did he get an accurate one? You know, what did Chael tell him? That's what I I mean. I and I I spoke to Brennan over the weekend because when I saw that story in the Review Journal, I sent it to him. You know, because as a friend, I wanted him to be aware. Um, There's a question of I would ask. There's like, what exactly did Chell tell him? I have a feeling that what Chell told him is not what he told the investigators. Prime Lennox Lewis Lewis versus Tyson Fury. You know, this is going to be recency bias to the nth degree, but I. Tyson Fury didn't live in an era where the heavyweights he could beat would put him on a mantle of what Ali could achieve or maybe even you know um even some other heavyweights. but in terms of like the puzzle that he is and for guys to solve him i I don't know that Lewis would have been that guy i don't I don't know if any of them would have been that guy in a weird way is u f c right to not promote the fighters. Seems like the more we know about them. (laughs) Seems like the more we know about them, the worse people they are, this person writes. Keep it high and tight. Well, that's a little strong. Um, Also, if you can't promote people as a promoter, maybe you shouldn't be a promoter. But I would also argue that, you know, MMA fans, here's the thing. In the community, the, the, the fans are right to a degree. Which is that, like, dude, what MMA fans, a lot, not all of you, but what a lot of them want are MMA media to be just MMA super fans. Where they're like them, but they have a little bit more access to the fighters. But they basically talk like fans, where they're like, you know, we love this guy, and that guy's amazing, blah, blah, blah. And, of course, I, I want to do that, too, because I am moved by them. I don't want to lose that part. But they don't want them to do the other side of it, which is then to then be critical about it. Then it's, who are you? What do you know? Blah, blah, blah. You know, there's just real no way to win. Um, so it's weird that I'm being asked like about their the character of a lot of guys who are getting into trouble these days because m- most of the feedback I get is that they don't care at all. Actually, Josh writes a weekly contribution to making Luke Salt and Pepper looking fresh. Thanks, buddy. Appreciate it. Um, Gastelum versus Duplacy. Who you got and why? I think Duplacy is about to arrive. Um, I think you know, yeah, it's short notice, but he seems like he's always pretty prepared i i I love his movement on the feet um he's got good resiliency this is the biggest fight of his life i don't really know where kelvin Gastelum is is headed um which isn't to say that he loses or something but i don't really know i just feel like duplicy between um his accuracy his movement power athleticism relative youth (sniffs) Good Lord, I wanted to die when this happened. Uh, Luke, can you talk about your time commuting to New York? Jesus. What did it cost in terms of money and time, and was it worth it, creative in Florida, looking for more? Yeah, it was terrible. So in 2000, was it 17 or 18, whatever it was, my last year at uh, Vox Media, they had me going to New York two times a week, every Tuesday and every Thursday. Um... New York is a four-hour trip from D.C. It's not especially close. New York is about the same distance from D.C. as it is to Boston. Um, These are all within the same corridor for rail travel, but they're pretty far apart. Um, If this helps at all, New York is about an hour and a half flight from D.C., something like that. So it's not like it's the farthest place in the world, but the train... It depends. So I was allowed to take the high speed train and it's not all that high speed in the morning and then I would take the regular train on the way back. High speed train would usually get me there about three hours. No it no issue. Um, so I would take the seven o'clock train to get there to do morning combat or whatever. And uh, I take the seven a.m. trains. So I'd be up at five to shower, get my stuff together, be at the train station by six fifteen. Right. Um, board at 6:35, trains at 7, gets there at about 10. Then you got to get on the, the New York City subway, then 20-30 minutes to get downtown. You go up to the Vox Media offices. We were on the I don't know, was it 17th floor something like that. Do the show and then go back out. And then I had to go uptown to do my radio show. That was about another 20 minutes uptown. And then uh, my show got out at 6. I'd have a train at 7, so I'd have to sprint downtown in rush hour. I would usually get there taking a the local, the one, excuse me, the um, yeah, not the two or the three, the one. Although, I guess you could do two and three. Uh, but not where I would not not on the, the block that I was. Go back down to New York City, and then we get a, I have a train at seven, and then that would put me home usually around 11 at night uh, if there were no delays. But there were routinely delays um, all the time. So there'd be a lot of days I didn't get home till 12 or 1, especially on those like – no, excuse me, I went to – not Tuesdays and Thursdays. I went to New York on Mondays and Thursdays. Pardon me, because Monday was the, the day the show aired. Uh, it was hell on earth my 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 health went to shit i was drinking not kidding every single day just to like numb the stress of travel and of expectation and content development and ever it was awful it was awful it was awful i hated every minute of it uh and people were like why did you move to new york city here's why i didn't move to new york city because i didn't trust that i had a future with the company why was i going to move to new york city when i wasn't sure i wanted to stay and i was pretty sure that um I didn't want to spend any more time with that company than I otherwise had to until I could make a lateral move somewhere else. That's why I never moved. I didn't trust them for two seconds to secure my future. They made it pretty clear they could not be trusted with that. So um, it was useful for the time to get a gig like that for a lot of reasons, but that was hell on earth. That was hell on earth. I put on. So this this is the part about my weight loss that has been so like frustrating. By the time I addressed it in the middle of the pandemic. Is it true that I was addressing at that point at first uh, weight gained from the pandemic, right? Just everyone's in quarantine eating Cheetos, whatever. Yes, that is true. But what ended up being revealed to me was that through years of, you know, because I was traveling, I've been traveling to New York at least once a week until recently, but like, you know, up until the pandemic, from like 2011 on, like I was going all the time. But then that last year, it just got ratcheted up past, you know, a degree I can even explain. It would call that exhausting and mentally frying was, was it was, it was awful. It was absolutely awful. So the point I'm trying to make here is, um, uh, I forgot what I, was, what I was saying. I've been rambling so long about it. But, um, yes, oh, about the weight loss. So then I ended up getting off all of that and then a little bit more but what i had to confront was that i'd been living unhealthily for far longer than that. and so now i've gotten all the pandemic weight off and now i've gotten a little bit of the pre-pandemic weight gain off, but i still have you know, i haven't trained regularly since 2016 or so. and there's you can see that there's i did an interview so i did a um you can see how well muscled i was at the time. i did a um i did a An instant reacts. It was me, Sean Elshadi, and Ariel when, when initially Connor and Nate were going to be UFC 200, and that all got changed. Uh, We did our we because we were all in Las Vegas at the time. We did a reacts, and then you can see that I was like super. I was super strong at the time, but since then, I think it's just been years of abuse. And so the problem is, I had to undo not just all the pandemic, but all the. Other stuff. And it's taken a while. It's taken a while, man. Like, I have times where I'm, I, try to, I try to be strong for all of you out here. But there's times where I'm just like, fuck, when is this going to end? But the, well, who can I blame? Who can I blame? I did it to myself. So I, no, no one put this weight on me. No one's going to get it off for me. It's just life. Uh, at what point is it call out at work? I've been struggling with my mental health in a debilitating way and struggling to complete basic work at the end of my desk. Also, thanks for MK. If you're feeling that way, you need to talk to someone. I will say that when I fir- my mom first died and I could barely focus on work, it's not a long-term solution. I'm not advocating taking drugs. I will say I was prescribed medically um, Adderall for a brief window. For a very brief window, it was very helpful. Uh, Just to like shake the cobwebs off for me to just start work projects. I I would spend hours just looking at my screen, running memories through my mind. I couldn't work. So to get kicked out of that, it helped. But the only answer to this is you must talk either way to a medical professional, somebody who can help you work this through. And if your work is burning you out like this, I'm having this conversation with my wife because when I was that year, when she saw me that year, I went, you know two times a week to new york city and how much it absolutely destroyed me and she was like you can't keep doing this like you can deal with difficult jobs um for a while where you're completely burned out you can do that for a while you can do it for a while but you cannot the that trade metaphorically speaking will come to a close as well and when it does you must be able to pivot out. My, I'm having that conversation with my wife. If you're feeling that way, you need to seriously consider either having a conversation with your superiors or realizing that a healthy work environment is not possible at the place you're at. But there is no reason to go through life feeling the way you're feeling for very long. For short windows where you kind of need to for a specific project or you got big dreams or something, all right, you can let some stuff slide. But if you're just if you're just doing it and that's like, oh, I guess this, this is just work nowadays. No, 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 it's not. Will you do a dedicated political chat? Folks, the first thing we have to do is sound treat the new office. That's the first thing we have to do. And then the second thing we have to do is then put the show back in it. After that, and I get the whole point. Understand something. What is the point about going to the office? And we're going to be back on Tuesday. The whole point about going to the office is to facilitate content production. To do more work. It is absolutely not my goal at all To do one video a week which is just a live chat. I know that's what happened in the last week. Not by choice. Trust me. Othello and I were troubleshooting all fucking day on Tuesday last week. Um, And we realized that until the entire room is properly sound treated. That nothing we're doing is going to matter. So that's what we're up against. But what am I trying to point out to you here? I'd be interested in doing a political chat. Only. Only. After all of my MMA stuff is fixed first. And... That's my only priority right now. Thoughts on the Bisping doc? Everyone's telling me it's good. I have not seen it. I will make... You know what? I will make it a point to watch it because I've seen so many people tell me that it's really good. Uh, Thank you for the content. Congrats on the Burns interview. The in-person format brings it to a higher level. You know what? I'll give CM Punk credit for something because he said it once and it seems obvious but when they say it out loud it makes more sense. You know, to go from in-person conversation to then on the phone or or maybe in-person then FaceTime then on the phone and then it's just like you know voice messages, and then it's just email. Something is lost at each stage about what a conversation could look like. At each stage, it becomes less of itself. So I would like to have conversations, A, with people who wanna have them with me, but B, in conditions that facilitate better conversations generally. That's why Joe Rogan has, you know he doesn't really do digital guests. It's pretty wise to not do digital guests. You should do it where it's in person. You get a completely different scenario when you do that, you know, case by case. Non MMA question: Have you had a chance to see the Batman? I still have not seen the Batman. I uh, I rewatched another Kurosawa film. By the way, it's so funny. I didn't I, I didn't even realize this. Forgive my ignorance. It's not. I knew "ran" was not the English word like "ran," but I thought it was pronounced "ran." It's pronounced "ron." Um, just to be clear about that. But anyway, I rewatched. Um, a couple of Kurosawa movies recently and uh, because they're available to me on stream. If it's available on streaming, I'll see it. Oh, I did see the new Spider-Man with Doctor Strange, or all that shit. Uh, that was, and, and, you know, I'm not going to spoil it, but there are... It plays a little bit with the, with the multiverse. Yeah, that's probably the best Spider-Man movie I've seen. I don't really like Spider-Man all that much. Spider-Man's kind of a kind of a bitch. Like, I, he can do a lot, you know, I know a lot of people love him, but it's like dorky high school kid is really this fucking hero. Nah, I'm much more of a Punisher type, <laughs> you know what I mean? Just it's like, what do you do? Oh, I just kill everything. Oh, okay, that's a little more my speed. I'm more, you know. Plus, that guy's from DC. The guy who plays the Punisher, he's from DC. I forget his name, but um, as well, uh, yeah. That's kind. Of, that's I'm a little more. I'm a little less Star Lord. More Drax, you know. Someone says up the borough. I don't know what that means. Probably some kind of. Terrible thing, but I'll read it just the same. Luke, uh, one of your go-to roasts is calling someone brain damaged. How is this meaningfully different than calling someone the R word? Uh, how is it different than how is being hit in the head with a tire iron different than calling someone the R word for a genetic uh, inheritance? Uh, probably very different. Oh, here's someone asking thoughts on the new Spider-Man movie. Yeah, I loved it, even though I think Spider-Man's a bitch. Uh, why hasn't UFC tried kickboxing like one has because kickboxing is not very profitable most places Bellator kickboxing failed but the UFC would have a lot more eyes on it I think you are not correct about that there's always been this conversation like why hasn't kickboxing worked in the US let me tell you something relative to when I was a kid kickboxing has never been as popular as it is today and more to the point I think it's still deeply cultural it's like, it's still, I think, seen here as very European, um, you know, uh, Asian, and obviously there's a lot of different Asian flair to it and different rule sets in different countries, but it's just sort of vaguely seen as something that they do that we don't, kind of like, I don't know, like rugby or something. Which And rugby is more popular than it ever has been as well, but soccer too. Like, the, the sports that are more globally popular or at least popular among our peer nations, you know, they they have never been as popular here as they have been today. Uh, but well, I guess rugby may have been popular in the 19th century or something. I'm just trying to point out that they've grown a lot. But kickboxing um, until you just have a lot of Americans who absolutely dominate it, and ache, and the more than an audience of people who are just participants. Like who watches kickboxing? Yeah, typically, people who train kickboxing. You know, like that's that's who's interested in it. It's that's not the case When I'm talking about North American audiences That's not necessarily the case in Europe But until that changes Nothing else will Colby never spoke bad for Jorge's kid You spread lie <laughs> Okay, thanks for the money Stupid uh, Does Hamzat's stock go down If he loses to Burns Yes, but like not in the wrong way Like It just goes back to earth A little Also, I gotta say this if Hamza like does really well, but kind of comes up just short against Gilbert, dude, he's already won in a way. Like you, dude, Gilbert is a, a a very high quality opponent, very experienced, athletic, can wrestle, can do jiu-jitsu, can strike, has faced the the very best his generation has to offer, more or less. Uh, yeah, like you. Even doing well against him is commendable. Beating him would be like holy fuck, you know. So if it went down, it would not go. It wouldn't be like oh he's trash. I mean, I'm sure some idiot will go out and say that, but the, you know, the thoughtful among us will be like, okay, all right. It is a little bit too much too soon, but so what? Do you think fainting against Israel and causing him to pull his head back? And then throwing body kicks, leg kicks, and going for takedowns is the best way to beat him and then adjust accordingly. I mean, I think certainly that could be one thing that could be implemented against him. Uh, but I've just sort of often said, you know, you, you have to realize this. It's not just that you could, you know, potentially bank on him planting his feet and then using trunk movement to evade and then using that to build offense behind that, which is essentially what you're suggesting. That's more or less what you're referring to. But I think on top of that, and I've said this before, I'm going to keep saying this. If you want to beat Israel Adesanya one way or the other, you must diminish his capacity for leg kicking. A lot of ways to do that. You could wrestle him. That'd be one way to do it. You could check kicks. That'd be another. You could go first and then get out. That'd be a third. There's probably many more you could do. But you must do that. People keep hating that he does it, and then he just keeps doing it and winning. Rather than getting mad about it, do something about it which again I realize is very easy for me to say and harder to do but you have to take away his capacity for leg kicks because what he will do is either score them in response to offense or freeze you with his feints and then score them and then exit or score them and then build offense behind them as well but he, it is a steady drum beat of offense for him and it keeps him in the in each round and that keeps him in each fight It is it is arguably his most important weapon arguably not his most potent, not his most flashy, not his flashiest, not his coolest by any stretch of the imagination. But what wins him a lot of close fights and a lot of close rounds against very difficult guys, leg kicking. And he's got a whole broad system about how he uses it. It's not one kind. Inside, outside, left-handed, right-handed stance, coming, going, blah, 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 off this combo, setting up that combo. I mean, he's a million different, off this feint, off that feint, from this angle, from that angle, at this distance, Blah, blah, blah. I mean, there's a million different ways he's got of doing it. But it's so consistent and it's so transparently obvious to anyone paying attention that that is the most consistent form of offense he often gets in close fights. So if you're going to have a tough fight with him, you know, if you can really begin to put it on him, that's great. That's great. You can build stuff behind that. But you need to have an attack or at least some defense and a combo of both that diminishes his capacity for leg kicks. How do you want to do that? Once you do that, you can take away the rest. Does the UFC rule set favor wrestlers and grapplers versus one? Yes, it does. If so, how would the fights change if the UFC adopted other promotions rule sets? You would not see nearly as many stall positions if wrestlers had to get kneed in the face off a level change. You just And that's why you don't see it as much in one. They can't hang out. They get torched. Can't hang out um, Yeah, They quite obviously favors American wrestlers Now, did they make the rule to like Oh, we're going to favor our wrestlers I don't, I don't know about that But this is the other point Again, you all know this If you watch this chat for some time When you hand over the rule set And rule adjudication and rule management To government entities It becomes very hard to change them Once you've had more enlightened ideas later Uh, someone so writes. You're the much needed pail of water in the arid land that is the space we call mixed martial arts. Well, thank you, articulate analysis. Thank you very much. He says a bunch of other things and uh, tell BC to move over, Lucifer. I'm more ruthless. Ah, uh, leave you toothless. Uh, Othello writes. Did he really put five down like a like a like a dirt bag? When is your next UFC viewing party? Please say I don't know, but sometime soon. We need to know what that means. Um... When is my next viewing party? I don't know. We need to see what that means. (laughs) It would have to be... When could I do it? So there's nothing this weekend. I'm not going to do it for 273. It would have to be after two... I wouldn't mind doing it for a fight night. You know what? Let me see. Let me pull up the list. So to answer the question... So you got uh, Luke versus Muhammad 2, but I'm going to be in Dallas for that. So then you have Lemos versus Andrade. Then you have Font versus Vera. Now that's a little more interesting to me. Although, uh, Gina Mazzani, Shana Young. Antonia Shevchenko versus Courtney Casey. Uh, not a whole lot on that card. Um, what about Lemos versus Andrade? Oh, that's a little bit better. Clay Guida versus Claudio Poitras. Mike Jackson is back. Montana De La Rosa, Dwight Grant. Uh, Mon- Monel Kopp is on that one. There's some decent ones, maybe for that one. UFC Fight Night 209 Oh, that's Blahovich versus Rakic I might do one for that I might do one for that Because that fight is Yeah, Frank Camacho versus Man- uh, Manuel Torres Yeah, that would be a good one as well I might do it for that one, Othello You fucking desperate dude Do you watch tennis? Since you make... I made tennis analogies Do you watch tennis at all support a particular player? Uh, not Djokovic <laughs> I don't support his dumb ass at all. Um, although I recognize he's an incredible player to watch. And I, you know, we're lucky to watch when he plays. I, I, I am not that crazy. Um, I do like Nadal. as You know what? I've been a Federer guy. Okay, when I grew up, it was Sampras versus Agassi. I was a bit more of a Sampras guy. Uh, and then I liked Boris Becker, Yvonne Lendl. You know, I liked all those guys. Um, more recently, I've been a Federer guy. I just love the way he carries himself. But Nadal is a big Real Madrid supporter, and he was the guy that introduced—putatively, he is the guy that introduced the club to uh, Marco Asensio, who's sort of a very dynamic player for them. Um, So I'm a little bit partial to him. But those are the three greats of this generation. Like, I don't watch in a way where I know, like, anybody other than the very best. But yes, I certainly, you know, I have a very strongly respect, you know, elite tennis. Could you explain the match clause in contracts? When PFL matched Bellator's offer for Kayla, did that mean she had no choice but to re-sign? Yes. Or just not sign at all but and retire, but yes. Um, so the match clause, this is why the match clause is a little bit interesting because, um, for example, there was a dispute over Gilbert Melendez and his contract with UFC and Bellator Bellator tried to put a bid on him at, at for a time, it didn't it didn't work ultimately. But um, if I if let's say you're a let's say you're Kayla, and I'm PFL, um, what can happen is I can make you an offer, or I can not make you an offer. Doesn't matter. Either way, there becomes a period where you are allowed to go seek other offers. You're done with your fights, but you're not totally out of the weeds on the or out of the shackles and confines of the contract. Again, MMA fighters don't have a lot of flexibility when it comes to this kind of thing. Although matching rights is not all that uncommon. My contract, for example, with CBS Sports has matching rights. So, like, you know, at the end of a deal, if ESPN came around or something, they could match or whatever. But to this quick question, so I'm I'm PFL, you're Caleb, so. Under the contract, it says after a certain amount of time it expires, because usually there's a exclusive negotiating period where you can only renegotiate with PFL. If, if a deal is not reached, then you can go in and get to other parties. At that point, she can go to UFC, she can go to Beltor, she can go to whoever, and she can field. Once they make a formal offer, you take it back to PFL, and you say, either you match this or I'm gone. And when you match it, it has to be, you know, uh, that th- this is where it gets a little bit tricky but in general, what is enumerated in the contract that they offer has to be enumerated in the contract that you offer. Not so much in all the same ways. For example, if you go to one company that can offer you a pay-per-view and the other one can't, they have to offer you a similar monetary value. And in fact, the difference between the UFC and the Bellator, uh, the, around Gilbert Melendez, this or was it Pettis? I think it was Melendez, where they had this dispute. was like, were they actually matching by offering the exact same things or were they offering something that was equivalent? And there was a little bit of dispute about that. But in general, you know, if you're going to offer 100 to show, 100 to win, or let's say Bellator comes and says, no purse split, 200K, you can go back and be like, 200K, no purse split. They, they have to match that. They have to match that. So in one way, it does empower the fighter to go get competitive offers and then use that to maximize the best one possible. On the other hand, once PFL matched it, it's either you sign this or you're retired. You don't get to go anywhere else. Now, some of those clauses have sunsets, but you would have to wait out the sunset clause, like when it just expires altogether. But as long as they matched it, and they have those matching rights, and those matching rights are good for a period of time, you have to wait that out. So you, you cannot just say, eh, fucking I'm done. doesn't work that way. Last but not least, Luke, can you comment on how great Shogun was in his prime? He was a force of nature. I don't know if the newer fan base truly understands how special he was. Yeah, I mean, he was the he, he was... Just think about the last time a guy just—I don't know how to explain it. Because um, Habib's rise wasn't even like John Jones's. John Jones was—it was immediately okay. It was—it was apparent to to again beating Guzmal. You were like, "Huh, I didn't see that one coming." Because Guzmal came in from IFL, very well respected, and then he started beating on people. You were like, "You did know who how they would do at the UFC level," and you're like, "Oh fuck balls, okay, he's." Very good, and just never let his foot off the gas. Shogun was like that too. Maybe not quite exactly like that, but the um, the middleweight Grand Prix that he just dusted everyone through, I, I just can't overstate it. This was part of the you know a dominant era of pride. This was part of a dominant era of that weight class, and there were some big names ahead of him like you know Rampage and whatnot where he was just rolling fucking through them and the way he just demolished everybody. And then there were these Brazilian top team versus shoot-to-box rivalries and then the way he just stuck it to all the BTT guys. This was big. It was it was really big. So he came around at a very prestigious tournament and just took it by the scruff of it in the neck. And it wasn't just a prestigious tournament because it was a pride tournament. That was at a time when that weight class was like bantamweight is now. It was just, just, just pouring over with talent in UFC, in pride. Pride obviously had a lot. And he wasn't just winning it. He was winning them violently and quickly and authoritatively and... You know, with with just punishing Muay Thai and good jiu-jitsu. And I remember when he knee-barred Kevin Randleman, you were just like, God damn, this dude can just do it all. He was, he, was, he was amazing, but his style had a lot of brutality to it. The training had a lot of brutality. And by the time he came to the UFC, he had the injuries to his knees. Now, he recovered from them, and he was able to get a second wind in his career where he got the belt and, you know, got the revenge on Machida when he came over. But that win against Griffin just doesn't show you who he was. The win over the second win, the win over Liddell, and the 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 second win over well the second fight over Machida was a much better example of what he was when he was in Pride. But these young guys who come out and then they beat veterans, and then that tournament structure, the way he did it, was it just it was like the the tournament that launching like Shogun doing his part and then the tournament doing its part, the weight class being prestigious and everything sort of lining up. That's when a tournament works its best. Is when it worked the way it worked for Shogun. Because it just shot him out of a cannon into the public MMA consciousness, and made him this darling of the sport. And you know the style in which he fought added to it, and the rivalry added to it. But there's just no denying he, he was my wife's favorite fighter for a long time, not anymore. But um, for a while she watched MMA, and Shogun was the guy. Because dude, he was. If you were a fan of MMA in 2007 or 2006, and you didn't like Shogun Hua, you you weren't a fan of MMA. You were just some fucking poser. He was impossible. <laughs> I mean, he, you know, it was like the most dynamic talent in the sport for a little while, uh, and violently so. Um, he was, there was a moment in time where he was extremely special. And this is the other part about it, too. It's like, you know, Mangabed onkaliev is very, very good, but he's got this slow kind of trickle. There's something about that tournament where it can just elevate a guy, you know, the way they did it back then very hard. Now it's the slow accumulation of wins, and then all of a sudden it becomes the straw that broke the camel's back. The tournament and the way they used to do it was a much more of a fast-forwarding of this process. I really kind of missed that a little bit, to be honest with you. All right, I think that is it. I believe that is it. I'm gonna check one more time and then we'll call it a day. Yes, that's it. Okay. Uh thank you guys so much for watching. I genuinely appreciate it. Thumbs up on the video, hit subscribe. Uh, an announcement coming tomorrow an announcement coming tomorrow so be on the lookout for that but uh, also this podcast will be up right after the show okay until next time bitches I want you all to